Uh, We'll be in Psalm 93 today. Around the world, uh, there are many churches celebrating uh, a thing called the church calendar. I don't want to get too nerdy on that. I know that's not a thing we do. But today, many of the churches around the world are uh, celebrating a thing called Christ is King Sunday. And so this is the final Sunday uh, in, in the church calendar. This is the Sunday where it all happens, where we, where we go from Advent, the birth of Christ, through the life of Christ, through the exaltation of Christ, the, the death, the wandering, the, 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 the journey that goes there. And then today we get to see he's king. He is the wonderful king. So today, as we begin our nativity series, I wanted to start with that. Psalm 93 is actually a text that many churches across the world will be, uh, will be looking at. So we are united today at this time with churches across the world looking at the same text, thinking the same thoughts, wondering what are floodwaters and uh, why does his decree and why is it trustworthy? So uh, we'll be wrestling with a lot of the same themes that Christians across the world are wrestling with in a wonderful way. And I want to use this to set up our nativity series because this is the king that we're anticipating. In Advent, we anticipate a king, so I felt like it would be great to show us who that king is. Who are we anticipating? Rather than create a hope of the king on our own, I'd like to see what the text tells us, what the Psalms tell us about this wonderful king. I'll read it one more time. It's short and it's lovely. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So, why can't Facebook tell the truth? (laughs) This is one of the starting questions of uh, of a recent podcast from the uh, Atlantic journalist Derek Thompson. Uh, He has this eight-part podcast series called Crazy Genius. It's super fun if you like those. It's only eight. You can knock them out fast. Um, he asked this question. One of his episodes is titled, Why Can't Facebook Tell the Truth? And in this, Thompson, Thompson, uh, prompts, uh, Thompson prompts the fac- and facilitates a debate on whether Facebook is fixable or whether it's a business model that's designed to tell us lies. His big question is, why so many lies, Facebook? Thompson concludes through discussion, debate, and uh, some really helpful insights He concludes that Facebook is a digital repackaging of a sneaky genius marketing trick that's about 180 years old where this business model is is you get readers to look at things and while they're looking at things, you attach a whole bunch of advertisements in that tunnel and then you sell all of their attention. You're actually marketing people's attention to the advertisers and you're also giving them their information, which we all know about here in the last few months. Uh, Facebook has not done so well on that. They said, that's the, that's the business model. And so he concludes, as he's in this conversation, that even with a multitude of fact-checkers and fact-checking companies who are affecting the algorithms of Facebook posts so that the more truthful ones come to the top and more ridiculous ones go to the, to the wayside, he says, even when that attempt is there, and it's a big attempt, quote, for now, Facebook's just a place where gossip triumphs over truth, end quote. The only hope that he concludes is for a more truthful news uh, is to break up Facebook or beat it 
by something designed for, for a better, excellent, more captivating truth. This isn't limited to Facebook. I'm just using Facebook as an example because it's an easy one. Uh, our Photoshop products that we, uh, we, we, we always are a little lackluster when we get them opened. Or we go to the fast food place and realize the burger's not that big, but that big. Our overspoken politicians making promises that are, are insane. Our manicured online identities. Truthiness, as opposed to truth, is the spirit of our age. Truthiness is truth, or is lies, guised or dressed up as truth. So the question I ask, the question I ask the text, the question that I feel like the psalmist is asking as he thinks of this king reigning is, where can truth be found? And really the big question is, who can we trust? Can we trust this king? Or is he just like the rest of the truth that we hear? We don't have to go far for real and lasting truth. Rather than wait for better fact-checking, better laws, uh, and accountability, or less commercialized society to arrive, that's right here in Psalm 93. Psalm 93, it shows us, the psalmist invites us to look back at a time. Not to wait for the resolution, but to look back at a time to see that there is one true king who is mighty and trustworthy. And so I want to look at this picture that the psalmist uh, paints for us here in Psalm 93. So it's a word picture. There are three parts to this picture, and that's how we'll go about this. I'm not just designing the three parts because I'm a preacher, although that's probably part of it. Um, but I am designing it in three parts and talking about it this way because he does speak of three aspects of a picture. There are times where maybe if you're an art enthusiast, you know, you don't just look at the whole picture the whole time and be like, oh, the Mona Lisa, that's great. You look at little, little finite things. You know that, that in Renaissance art, the, the, the background is almost uh, more helpful for interpreting than is the one statement up front. And so what we see here, as we look at this picture, I would have given you a picture to think of, but I want you to do what the psalmist wants us to do and imagine that. So turn on your imaginary. And he has this picture here. The first thing he's going to say in in, in verses 1 and 2 is he's going to paint this picture of a mighty king, that there is a mighty king robed in splendor. Okay, then the next picture is going to be the crashing waves up against this king's throne. That's verses 3 and 4. And then he's going to finally move us up to the mouth of this king and say, in the midst of whatever's happening in this scene, there are some words that come out. And we need to listen to those words. And these are words that we can trust. Now, we could just jump ahead and we could read verse 5, and then I could say, this is the point. Your decrees, God's decrees, the Lord's decrees, are very trustworthy, You can all go home, so trust him. Uh, But there's a reason why verses 1, 2, 3, 4 exist. It's because we feel the weight of it if we sit there and enjoy what it is, the word pictures, the truth behind them, all, all of what he's speaking about reality and creation and God's authority. If we have all of that in mind, that verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 are developing, then we get to the foreground, and it's going to be a different way which we're interacting with the decrees and the trustworthiness of God. So, We will receive this word picture as it is given to us. So scene one, or vignette one, or focus one. We're going to look at the king on his majestic throne. I'd encourage you to follow along here. Uh, I'm doing my best to follow the wording of the ESV. Uh, I think that's more helpful than me making it up or rephrasing it. 
majestic throne. The nature of the Lord's majesty is his strength. We read here that it says, the Lord is robed in majesty. He's robed in majesty. Like a, like a flashy prize fighter, like, a, like the coveted master's coat, uh, a symbol of achievement that you get to wear every year. Like the decorated gown of an accomplished academic with their fancy little feather or whatever it is to let you know exactly what knowledge is in their brain. This robe tells us about this God. This robe tells us about this Lord. And the Lord, what does he wear? What is his robe made of? He is robed in majesty. Oh, that's great. He is robed in majesty. He's not robed in, in wool or gold or the finest of linens. He's robed in something that no other god, no other king, no other ruler can have. He's robed in majesty. And we could say, oh, it's just talking about how majestic he is. But we get on a little bit further here because this God wears and does things that no other God can do. And that is the reason why he reigns. Let's read on a little bit more. Because there's this robe and he doesn't just sit there, you know, all casual on Sunday, you know, walking or or Saturday morning, walking around with his robe wide open. That's just inappropriate and weird. He has a belt. He binds it all together. Rich kings choose the finest materials to show that they're rich. Pharaoh probably wore the golden cord. He probably had something to show his might, his richness, his greatness. Wise teachers are awarded, as I've referenced, symbolic cords, maybe not around their waist, around their shoulders, to show that they've got brains. Powerful warriors choose the strongest belt. I mean, even you look at our our military men. They wear belts designed to hold things because they're useful and they're helpful and they need to keep the justice with these tools. Well, this king does something different. This king does something that no other king does. The Lord doesn't choose a strong belt, a strong belt here. It says he has put on strength as his belt. His belt isn't strong. It is strength itself. I don't know how you do that. (laughs) I don't know how you actually get strength. It's a noun. So grammatically it works. You can put strength on, but I just don't like, how do you, how do you quantify that? How do you pick up strength? How do you do strength? This Lord reigns in a way that he can grab strength itself and put it on as a robe. And his robe is majestic. I'm glad we slowed down to read this first verse instead of jump to the end. This is a different kind of Lord. This is a different kind of ruler. The Lord reigns. Well, of course he does because he is robed in majesty and he's literally wearing strength. It only makes sense then that the Lord reigns. Who else would reign against this God? Well, we're going to find out. No one. No one is mightier than he. I think this speaks to us well. This speaks to us in a way that is, that is incredibly helpful because, because if you're like me, there are times where I forget this simple thing. I think that like really the point is, just boil it all the way down here in verse 1 and 2. There is a king. And maybe if you want like the extra part of that point, there is a king and it's not you. We need to hear, and, and, and the Israelites that are, that are singing this song need to sing these words just as we confess our sins. They need to hear, the Lord, is, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty because I usually wake up and by, by 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm thinking that I reign. And if, especially if I'm good on my to-dos, 
Like, I really reign the day, and I need to be reminded that that's not majesty. That's not strength. That's just simple efficiency, and that doesn't award me the right to reign. But for some reason, my simple things that I do that are nothing close to what this Lord does puff me up so that I think I'm the one that owns the day. I establish myself. I make my design. I pick my calendar. I pick my awards and my achievement and my education. And I pick my family and I tell them what to do and we run the show and I am the one designing this. But we don't create because in his strength and his majesty, he creates. Verse three, or verse two, your throne is established from of old. Well, let me go back a little bit further. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Oh, the world is established. So the world doesn't establish itself. It is established by something. Verse 2, your throne is established from of old. We read all over the New Testament that Christ is, 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 is the king that has been designed. It has been the plan from the foundations of the world, from the beginning, from uh, right here, from everlasting. The world is somehow established, but we know that even before the world was established, The world that will never be moved is established. That the throne of the Lord was established from everlasting. And if you want to go with apologetics, we don't need to go down that road right now. He is the first cause. I feel like this gives legitimate legitimate citation for the Bible saying that even if you want to go the route uh, that way, he's the first cause. He was there first, and from his everlasting throne he decided to put things into motion. So it makes sense that he reigns because he is the creator. Okay, so we've looked at this part of the picture as a beautiful part of the picture. It's an intense part of the picture. It needs to be intense because it's about to get really loud when we move into the next part of the picture. The next part of the picture, we kind of we zoom out or shift to the side. I don't know however you're imagining it. And now we look at these things called the floodwaters. Let's read that again. Verse three, the floodwaters have lifted up, O Lord, The floods have lifted up their voice. It's almost a crescendo here. The floods lift up their roaring. So we're roaring at this point. And then above all of that, we hear the word mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Oh, that's fantastic. People can't write that kind of stuff. That's wonderful. There's this crescendo of this floodwaters being mighty and roaring are there, but there is one who is mightier than even that. So we live, in, uh, we live near Iowa City. Uh, we we, we kind of understand, some of us, most of us, not me, but I've seen it and heard you guys talk about it. We know what floodwaters are. <laughs> we, uh, uh, there's something interesting that I hear about here. Charles Spurgeon kind of speaks of this idea of the roaring of floodwaters. And I think it likens to maybe an experience we've had with the Iowa River here. Uh, so when, when, when a river gets up to flood stage, like it, it's not necessarily roaring. It's just really, really full and moving. Where does that sound come from? The roaring. Spurgeon says the roaring of floodwaters comes from it being broken up. When it, when, when, when it goes over that spillway, it's still kind of there. And then it hits the trees and it hits, and it carves out something. It's roaring at that point. The breaking up of the waters is their roaring. Oh man, that's magnificent. These floodwaters come in to, to the throne of God, and they're broken up. But I don't want to just say that they're broken up. God is, you know, God is king and victorious. That's true, but I don't think that's the whole picture here. 
Because it's not that they're without effect. See, if, if we go through, as we've seen, and you can see scars if they just go over to the dam, uh, it, cuts a play, uh, it cuts a path. There is roaring. There is a thunderous roar. There is destruction that happens. But the roaring, something happens there. Energy is being displaced. Destruction is happening. It's being uh, knocked back and forth. Trees are being cleared out. Houses are being laid down. Buildings are being destroyed. And that's a very noisy sound. And that's a very thunderous roar. In the breaking up, their might is lost. But it's not the crashing floodwater. It's not that crashing floodwaters are powerless. As they crash, they destroy the thunderous roar. However, here's where this turns. We know that their their reign of destruction is limited. So one option we have is you just wait it out. I think sometimes we're left to that end. So, okay, I'm going to drop it in today. Maybe you're in those floodwaters. Maybe, maybe, they're, maybe they're just smoking you. <laughs> maybe, maybe you just have no idea where to go right now. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe, maybe it's a marriage thing. Maybe it's a, uh, I don't even know, a family thing. You just got done with Thanksgiving, so there's a whole bunch of fun stuff there. <laughs> sometimes those floodwaters are just destructive, and they just, they just kill us. We could sit there and take it and wait for their destruction to be done. The roaring is more in our minds because you just never stop thinking about it. Or there's something else. We don't have to wait for the end of their destruction if we have a mighty foundation. You see, verse 4 tells us that there is something mightier than the destructive floodwaters. Mightier than the thunders of many waves. Mightier than the waves of the sea. What is that thing that is mightier? Who is he? The Lord on high is mighty. If we cling to Christ, if we cling to God, we know that his truths are there for us. We know that his comfort, his guidance, his correction are there for us. Robed and reigning from his throne on high, Jesus the Lord, the anointed king, hears their raging and roaring as though it is water lapping at his feet. I love that part of the psalm. The picture is one of a very big throne. And if we zoom in, we see very big waters. But when we step out, we see that these waters are no comparison for the mightier king who is there on his throne. It is as though they are lapping at his feet. Martin Luther sings the song, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. You don't have to know what the word bulwark means to understand that Martin Luther got it right. Martin Luther understands that in times of trouble, when you are getting tossed around, run to God even when you don't know the answer or if there is light or how long these floodwaters will rush, run to him. He is a mighty fortress. And the waves that come in and destroy others are simply broken on his firm foundation. We see this, uh, we see this, uh, this, this, this antagonistic, these waves crashing up against the anointed king in Psalm uh, Psalm 2, we can, we can flip on to uh, uh, that. I think we've got it up here uh, for you on the screen. Psalm, uh, the book of Psalms is, is not just a bunch of random songs. It's not, you know, the Israelites' chicken soup for the soul. It's, 
it's, it's a collection intentionally designed of, of psalms to, to teach us about God and who he is. It's actually composed. It's a composition. It is a hymn book for the, uh, the worship in Israel. Uh, and it has themes. There are actually five books in the psalm, if you ever see it. That it breaks them up into some, some, somewhat of some themes there. Uh, two of the main themes happen at the very beginning of psalms. Uh, in chapter 1, Psalm 1, we get this idea, one of the most major themes running throughout all of the Psalms is that those who follow the ways of God are righteous, and those who don't are wicked, and they'll float away like chaff at the judgment. So there's one, cling to his ways and his righteousness. That's one of the big major themes when you read any of the Psalms. You can think about that, and you'll see like, oh, haha, it's telling me about that. Uh, Psalm 2 here, this is what we get, is this other thing, that Christ is king undeniably. Anytime you read about a king or royalty or anything like that or a kingdom in the book of Psalms, you should probably go back to Psalm 2, read it, and see, because he's giving you the tell. He's saying, here is what it is, Christ is king, and now here's one avenue at it. So what we get in Psalm 93 is one little extra unique look through one window at this idea of Christ being the king, and we see that he is mightier than the floodwaters. And that's what Psalm 93 is teaching us. He is king, mightier than the floodwaters. So we've had it up there, and I've set it up way too long. Let's just read it. Uh, I think Psalm, uh, Psalm 2 starts, I'll read the verse 1, and then this is verse 2 and 3 on the screen. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? There we go. Then the kings of the earth set themselves, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's interesting that the nations rage against this king in the same way that the floodwaters are noisy, are raging in the midst of a mighty God, of a mighty Lord. Psalm 93 has eloquently invited us to consider the, to consider the raging nations as thunderous floodwaters simply splashing against the footstool of Christ's heavenly throne. The floodwaters splash against his throne. The imagery is clear here, but I want to ask the question, who or what are the floodwaters? I feel like we can see that and say, ha-ha, Jesus is awesome, and just still stay looking at the picture when the intended purpose of the Bible is to be a part of it and to be formed by it. So what are the floodwaters? Who are the floodwaters? The floodwaters are the world, unguided or misguided, are unbelieving, working, laboring, speaking against the truths of the gospel. The floodwaters are the church universal, arrogant and unrepentant, saying one thing and then doing something quite different. To land it here, the floodwaters are you and I, all of us sinners, delighting in the path that leads to destruction. So uh, before we, we, you know, we look at these and say the enemies of God are, are dumb and wicked and they should go, you know, they should go to hell, as the Bible says. We need to consider ourselves as the floodwaters as well. There's hope because there are floodwaters that hit us and we need Christ. But we also need to guard ourselves against being those floodwaters. What is the raging what is it, or, or maybe a better question to ask Psalm 93, how is it that we lift up our voices against this king, this mighty king, 
Well, Psalm 2 helps us with that. They say, and they, they, uh, they come to counsel, they take counsel together against the Lord, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Uh, Eugene Peterson in the message uh, translates this in a wonderful way. Uh, it flows really, really well. He says, the God deniers, the Messiah defiers say, let's get free of God. Cast loose from Messiah, the anointed king. Let's get free of God. That's how you and I become the floodwaters crashing against this mighty throne. And the picture is silly. Like, why would you do that? Like, why would you go run up against this guy? If, uh, you know, it's just, it's never going to work. But then we go and do that. We probably have already done that this morning. We say, let's get free from God. You join the thundering of many waters when you think, when you act or speak in a way that attempts freedom from God's law or from God's love. And like the floodwaters, you cannot muster enough might to wash out the anointed king from his seat. God is mightier than waters and nations. God is mightier than fears and finances. God is mightier than singleness and marriage and spouses and friends. God is mightier than coworkers and bosses. God is mightier than addictions and arrogance, shame and self-doubt. He is mightier. So the very simple urge for all of us, so stop acting like he's not. Whether that's hopelessly crying out or grumbling or complaining that God is just not listening and not doing what he needs to be doing for me. Or by arrogantly boasting of your own works as though there is not a God who has given you those gifts and given you those opportunities and has sustained you along the way. It speaks against our extreme pride and arrogance. This text speaks of our extreme hopelessness when we don't think that there's a God who will come and save us. And it puts us rightfully in the spot to say, why don't we just listen to what he says? Which takes us to verse 5. So the picture here that we've established is that there is this mighty God. I think I've made that pretty clear. I think the text makes it painfully clear. He is mightier than anything. There are these thundering waves that when you and I are in the moment, like this week is very small in this picture, and the waves seem enormous to us, but in God's holy, eternal, everlasting, forevermore perspective, it's really small. And if we get ourselves in the will of God, if we get ourselves in the refuge of God, then we can see something that has an eternal perspective and we can see God's glory and the path to it in a different way than just trying to stop this one wave with a breaker. We go to the one, the ultimate breaker of waves. And as the, as the psalmist does this, he, he, he directs us to his seat, his throne, he directs us to the, our, our, our gaze and our imagination to the waters that are there crashing up against it. And then he kind of moves us up this majestic robe and he gets up to his head and we see and we hear that this king speaks. And this king not only speaks, just the way that it flows. We're, 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 at, we're at really loud. The floodwaters are raging and, and this king is, is mightier. And then we find out that he speaks a word that is even mightier and even louder than those raging waters. He speaks a word of truth. And that's what these waves need. And that's what our lives need so that we're not tossed about by every wave. As we move our eyes, eyes up this picture, we see his face. His face 
We hear him speak. And he speaks a word that the others don't speak. Because he doesn't just talk about things and say, hey, I'm almighty, and this is great. I mean, in Psalm 2, he laughs. But here, the psalmist has chosen something. It's not that he's speaking. He says, your decrees. He's decreeing. He's authoritatively stating things. Decrees are a thing that an authoritative king does. The psalmist has already helped us notice that he doesn't decree like other kings. His decrees are not opinions or perceptions or even philosophical uh, best conclusions. Rather, as the foundation of the world, as the first cause, as that then which nothing greater can be thought, the Lord decrees The Lord's decrees are an act of him revealing to mankind himself. Okay, so I'm going to pause there. That's a big thing. He doesn't doesn't sit on his throne and say, hey, I'm the king of the hill, and do what I say now. When God decrees to us, when he gives us his commands, he's also not saying, so submit to me. And just do whatever I want because it makes me really happy. And it gives me glory because it shows that I have power over those little, little groundlings, and I'm going to tell them what to do or wipe them out. That's sometimes how we think of God in his might. What God does in his might when he, when he decrees to us is that he, he is revealing, as I've said, he's revealing himself to mankind. And so he's saying, here is something of my nature. I want you to see this. I am holy. So here's the book of Leviticus. Be holy. <laughs> he says, I am loving. So here is, well, like the whole Bible, but John three sixteen. for I so love the world. So here's my love. Here's a glimpse of me. Here's a glimpse of how this works in creation. And now here's where the decree comes. So live like that reality. If we just read, your decrees are very trustworthy, I can say this is sweet and I can move on. But if, if, if the God of the universe, who is the first cause established from of old, from everlasting, who is sitting above every problem I've ever had as though it's just tickling his feet, when it's killing me, like I'm overwhelmed by these things, this guy is up on top and he says, let me show you some of myself. I love you. I am guidance. I am justice. I am mercy. I am holiness. I am all of these things equally. And I decree to you to come be a part of that. That's what this guy does. That's the hope that is in this king. That is why we get crazy excited for this king of heaven come down. So have hope. You're not without a king. If you're in a spot where you need to hear that, Hear that. You have a king who loves you. You have a king who is powerful to save you and wants to save you. You have a king who sees your problems as little waves. If you think that you have everything going for you now, even if it's not arrogantly, remember that you have a king, that you are not that king. that you don't get to design, nor will your ways and your designs last. If you build up that your, that, your, that your schedule, that your family, that your church is exactly the way that you want it, get ready, it's going to change. And then you'll have to wonder what that is. But when that happens, and it will happen, I hope that you see this king 
who's not condemning you, but saying, come, mighty fortress am I. So listen to the decrees of our true king. We know that we can trust them. This entire time I've been talking, it's really just to develop the word trustworthy. How is he trustworthy? I feel like the psalmist does this in a wonderful way. He goes in the side door here. <laughs> he doesn't say he's trustworthy here. Here are his credentials. But really, he builds up this huge picture of who he is. So now we get to this point in the psalm. And he say, oh, yeah, of course this guy's trustworthy. Yeah, I'm going to be on this guy's side. I'll just listen to what he says. This makes a ton of sense. Here are three ways that we can, we can listen to the decrees of our one true king. We can listen for his guidance. He's given us many more decrees. It's actually rebounded in a book, and they canonized it. It's great. Uh, so we know that this is truth. This is inspired truth from him. And it's rich. I mean, I, I read Psalm 93 when I was preparing this, and at one point I thought, like, what does this even say? You, you get in it, you pour over it, you rip it apart, you ask it questions, and you'll find that the word of the Lord does not return void. There is something for us in every word that is written here. And it is good guidance. It's guidance to Christ for repentance and hope and faith and forgiveness. But there's also something. We can listen to the decrees of the true king. When we kick against this, we need to be called back because he is just. That if we are those ways, if we are unrepentant, if we are going with our sin as though it's not sin, we're going to get broken up. We're going we're gonna to be we're going to be against something that, that is much, much mightier than us. And it's not wrong. It's not cowardice to say, hey, yeah, this isn't in line with reality. I'm just going to go with you now. I'm not going to rage against you. But there also, we can trust his mercy. We can listen to his decree of mercy when he says, all who repent of their sin are forgiven. And we can do that. There's an invitation there for us. So, as we turn towards Advent, Advent is a season. It's, it's the four weeks leading to Christmas, the four Sundays leading to Christmas. We're going to start that next week. We're going to bring out a, a wreath. We're going to talk about the hope and the joy and the love and the peace that is in Christ. We will look back and we will remember this king who, who came, who is, who, is, who is established on his throne, who, who, who died, who is risen, who is seated on his seat above all authority and kingdom and power and dominion for us. We're going to look at this king and remember that this has already happened. But in Advent, we, that the word Advent means we await the arrival of him again when he comes back to establish it once for all. Revelation says so that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Christ is Lord. We are in that moment, and each Christmas season, if you will, each Advent, we get to celebrate this coming King, who is God, Emmanuel, God with us, coming to lead us to a better way. So, how, who can we trust? The author, the creator, and the King, from everlasting to everlasting. The mightiest from on high, the risen, ascended, and seated Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.